Good morning, everybody. Um, if you're brand new with us today, my name's Aaron Stern. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, we would just want to orient you a little bit. And for anybody who maybe is online, can we just welcome everybody joining us online here today? So grateful uh, that you've joined us through technology. As we open the scriptures and jump into Sermon on the Mount today, uh, the question I think we need to be asking, not just today, but throughout uh, Scripture, is who am I a disciple of? You are someone's disciple. I am somebody's disciple. We are all learning how to live from someone. Now, that might be a social media influencer. It might be a political pundit. It might be uh, an athlete or a movie star. It might be a philosopher through a book. Even if you say, well, oh, no, no, I'm, a, I'm my own person. Nobody else is telling me how to live. You learn that from someone, somehow, somewhere. Somebody is shaping the way that we believe we are to live. At Mill City Church, we are fixated on being a disciple of Jesus fixated on who He is, what He has to say, and how we can be like Him. So we're giving, we give extra attention, and specifically this year, extra attention to the teachings of Jesus, specifically His most robust teaching, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. We are two-thirds of the way through, which, if you do the math, that means we're going fairly slowly. We started at the very beginning of February. We will finish uh, the seventh chapter at the end of October. We are two-thirds of the way through. Uh, we've done chapter 5, just finished chapter 6. And right before we go into chapter 7, starting next week, I just wanted to take a moment and kind of pause and reflect. Because even though we've been going through it slowly, I, I find that it is so loaded, packed full of gold. And, and certainly there's topics or, or a, a passage that could be expanded on, and we've taken time to stop and, and do that. But there's also ways that I found, oh man, I want to chew on that some more, and, and have been doing that. I've been chewing on Blessed are the Meek for months now, which we talked about in February. I've been talk, thinking through and reflecting on Jesus in the end of chapter 5, where he talks about loving our enemies, where he talks about not using violence to counterpunch, and that especially can be difficult in a counterpunch culture. You punch me, I punch you. And so, I don't know what it might be for you, or what passage maybe has stuck out to you, or somehow you're like, oh, that I need to chew on that some more. So in, the, in our way through the Sermon on the Mount, being two-thirds of the way through, we're going to take a pause and I'm going to make a few observations about the Sermon on the Mount so far, not just to look back, but also to remind us as we move into the seventh chapter. If you remember uh, these last couple of chapters, uh, if you've been around with us, uh, so if you haven't been with us, this is a way to kind of get a, a big overview and a, and a bit of a uh, grid for where we've been. Um, if you're not new and you've been with us, um, I think it's a helpful reminder, but you also, also might have missed some different pieces. Um, but we've broken the Sermon on the Mount up into different series. And so the first one is called Lucky, where we went through each one of the eight Beatitudes. And, and we called it Lucky because the, the word used is blessed, blessed are those. Uh, but 
But I think the, the meaning behind that is, for, is it could be caught in lucky. Not like lucky won the lotto, but like, oh, I'm so lucky to be alive. Lucky are those who are poor in spirit. Lucky are those who mourn, which is so countercultural. Then we moved into the second half where Jesus had these uh, several different instances where he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, the title of that series was Losing My Religion, where Jesus is, is talking to, and he does throughout the Sermon on the Mount, talking to the religious leaders of the day and even more broadly to religiosity, saying that it's not just about doing the right thing on the outside, like not murdering somebody, but actually about looking at the interior of our hearts and our lives and asking, do I have contempt? Chapter 6, we went through each stanza of the Lord's Prayer in a series called 57, because there's 57 words in the original Greek in the Lord's Prayer, unpacking each one of those stanzas as they have powerful implications on our lives and the way that we find ourselves in the world. And then finally, we just finished our series called In God We Trust, where Jesus is pushing on where do we find our trust? Do we find our trust and security in money, possessions, in control over what's happening and where we're going in the days to come? Or are we willing and able to live open-handedly with our finances, our possessions, and our understanding or control of our own lives. And so, three observations as we've made our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, the Sermon on the Mount is disruptive. Anybody else found the Sermon on the Mount to be disruptive? It should be. And it should be because it is very countercultural. It's countercultural to in a couple of ways. First of all, it's countercultural to our human nature. Our human nature bends towards selfishness. Our human nature bends towards putting self at the center, which means that God can't be at the center. Our human nature bends towards rugged individualism. Our human nature bends towards stinginess. And the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' teaching pushes us not towards rugged individualism, but desperate dependence on God and others. Pushes us from stinginess towards generosity, towards leadership of our lives being done by us or by God. Pushes us from a you-be-you mentality to deny yourself and follow Jesus. So it pushes against our human nature, but it also pushes against the ideals of a secular society in which we live that says that you don't need anybody else, a secular society that doesn't believe in transcendence, a secular society that, that says there are no boundaries in life, there you do whatever you want and truth is subjective. It's disruptive because because it doesn't, we live in a world that is, that it tries to push people into political tribes, to the right or to the left. You're either here or you're there. But the kingdom of God does not fit neatly into the right or to the left. And so if you find yourself snuggled up into one of those categories neatly and cleanly, you're going to be disrupted by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount because it doesn't fit either one neatly and easily. 
So if you find yourself disruptive, be aware of the disruption and don't just go the normal way. Oftentimes what, I I don't know about you, but if we're honest, we don't like being disruptive, right? We don't like somebody disrupting the way that we think or the way that we live. And so what we oftentimes do when we're disrupted is point our finger at the disruptor and say, stop, or this isn't right, as opposed to asking ourselves, why am I disrupted? Which is what we should be doing, especially as we're reading the teachings of Jesus. I am disrupted by Jesus' call to nonviolence. I am disrupted by Jesus' invitation to love my enemies. Do I do that? I'm disrupted by his boundaries around sexuality. Why is that disrupting to me? See, Jesus says right before the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 4, and he says this in other places throughout the Gospels, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent is, 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 means turn away or go another direction. Repent means something changes. Repent means uh, the way you've been doing it needs to get disrupted. And so we need to rethink or reorder our lives in light of the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. Everything, our money, our politics, our careers, our fears, our relationships. Which means that apprenticeship to Jesus, following Jesus, doesn't happen through a tweak. Meaning, oh, just tweak this. Oh, I just need to like, make this little adjustment in my thinking. If we could do that, we all would be amazing apprentices to Jesus. Tweaks are easy. Massive shifts are more disruptive to everything in our lives. The last couple of weeks, we've been talking about finances and and talking about anxiousness. and, and, And it isn't just about, oh, give a couple of bucks away. No, like actually be radically generous. Lean into the practice of tithing. Why? Because that's going to be a significant disruption. Anxiousness, lean into Sabbath and pausing and stopping and trusting God with our lives at one-seventh of your week to not lean into productivity. That is a significant adjustment. If you're not doing that, it, will, it is a significant change and commitment to make that happen on a weekly basis. Apprenticeship to Jesus costs us something. See here, in my humble opinion, there is a discipleship issue, discipleship to Jesus issue in the church, the modern church today. See, we've created this category where you can be a Christian without being a disciple to Jesus. Live my life like I want to, but be undisrupted by Jesus. And with all love and grace, that category does not exist in the teachings of Jesus or the New Testament. And so Jesus, in some ways, is a disruptor. Oh, he's a comforter, but sometimes we don't think of Jesus as a disruptor. We think, oh, he wants to make me feel less disrupted. Actually, he, if you read the Gospels, he's disrupting people on a very regular basis. And he's disrupting everyone because of the human tendencies. But you know who he disrupts the most? The religious people of the day. If I were to give a sub-observation, Jesus hates religion. That's what we find in the Sermon on the Mount. He really has a disdain for 
for the Pharisees and the ways in which they honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. Second observation is apprenticeship to Jesus is about transformation. Not information to believe, but truth to live into and become. That's why Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, don't murder, but I say to you, look at the interior of your lives. Look what's happening in your heart. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, and he talks about lust. Look at the interior of your heart. He later goes on in chapter 6 and says, and when you give to the poor, when you, when you pray, when you fast, do it without doing it for the approval of others. Looking for others' applause. What's he saying? I'm getting at your motives. I'm getting at the depths of who you are. Why? Because the word disciple is a noun. The word disciple is a noun, and so often, though, it's used as a verb. We use it as a verb a lot. If you've been around church for a while, I get asked every now and then, uh, Aaron, who are you discipling or who's discipling you? If I'm feeling snarky, my response is nobody. Because you can't. See, disciple is something you are, not something that is done by me or done to me. It's my identity. It's your identity as a follower of Jesus. And Jesus is wanting to transform you and transform me at the core of who we are. So to do some, some cleaning up on the outside is not Jesus' goal. His goal is get to the heart and the root of what's going on within us, which means that you and I wake up in the morning and I make my coffee or whatever your deal is, and you, you move through your day driven by and informed by what it looks like to be like Jesus. The Pharisees were mindful to obey the outward and the visible commands of God's law, but their righteousness went no deeper than their behavior. Jesus wasn't interested in mere external conformity and behavior modification. He, knew, he knows that true righteousness needs to occur at the heart level. It is an internal transformation that God wants. And if the inside is right, then the external behaviors will follow. Dallas Willard wrote the book, The Divine Conspiracy. He says, to be a disciple of Jesus is to learn from Jesus how to lead my life. My whole life, my real life, it covers everything, religious or not. In other words, following Jesus is not just about Sunday. Following Jesus is not just about uh, being in a city group. It's not just about those things. It is about those things and everything else. And then final observation, apprenticeship to Jesus happens in community. Jesus is not only addressing a crowd, but he's he, he is, in all of his language and the use uh, of the way that he talks to them, indicates plural, not singular. So we have, if, for instance, in the Lord's Prayer, our and we, not me and I. But even when he uses the term you in the Sermon on the Mount, he's not like, oh, this is just you and me, don't worry about the people around you. It's more like a y'all, all right? If you're a 
from the south, it's a y'all. If you're from Colorado, it's a you guys. That's what he's saying. You guys. It's a you in the plural, not a you in the singular. Point being is that we follow Jesus together. To be a part of Mill City Church, we are following Jesus together in northern Colorado, in a particular place together. And so Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I like to call His Kingdom Manifesto. It's His way of describing this is what it looks like to live under the rule and reign of Jesus in the Kingdom of God together. And it is together then that we follow Jesus. So, so he gives instructions, he gives boundaries, he gives, he gives I'm, not, I'm not talking just about the things on the outsur- out, outward surface level. I want to go deep into the core levels of who you are. David Jansen, professor of Old Testament at the University of Durham, said Jesus gave instructions to a family. It is an ethic that makes no sense to people who assume the church is a collection of individuals saved for heaven while individually also trying to get ahead in the world. It is a strenuous ethic, but livable for those who have been transformed into a we that belongs to Jesus. See, Jesus' vision for his followers wasn't just an individual life with Jesus, though that's important. Please don't hear me that that doesn't matter or that Jesus isn't individual or personal with you or with me. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows your days. He formed you in, his, in your mother's womb. The details of our lives matter. He sees you in the darkest valleys and he sees you in the mountaintops moments of your life. He sees you. But he doesn't leave it there and he says that's not all there is to it and it's not the fullness of life with God. Jesus' vision for his followers was for them to, to create a countercultural community. For, for the Sermon on the, on the Mount to be embodied collectively. See, because Jesus calls us to love one another, and if we aren't in community with one another, we can't actually express that to the world. Which, just to put it in context to some of the things happening in our day and age, Jesus didn't, his vision for his followers was not to give and spend their energy fighting culture wars, but instead to give their energy to creating a countercultural community that reflects the goodness and the ways of Jesus to the world. That's where the energy should go. And what we saw in the first century as the first century church rallied around building that cultural, countercultural community is that cult, countercultural community ended up influencing and changing the world. And that's what Jesus is calling us to today. Frederick Beekner just died uh, a couple of months ago. Author, theologian, says this. He says, you can survive on your own. But you can, and you can grow on your own, and you can prevail on your own, but you cannot become human on your own. We need each other to be who we're meant to be. We need each other to become who we're meant to become. Genesis chapter 2 says that God, after creating humanity, after creating Adam, after making humans in his own image, he says, it's not good for Adam to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. So I'm going to make someone who's going to come alongside him. 
I'm going to put him into community, just like God is in community in the Trinity, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He invites us into the Trinity, Trinitarian relationship together. That's how God sees and designed each one of us and calls us into it. And yet we find ourselves living out of it and, and experiencing the devastating effects Many sociologists would say that the greatest epidemic of our day is loneliness. England identified this so much that they actually have appointed a minister of loneliness. Because loneliness is having a, a dramatic impact on suicide rates, mental health rates, on medical issues. And so let's go to the source and let's, let's help people not live lonely. A study was done that shows that Living in loneliness is as unhealthy as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's why we talk about city groups so much. That's why getting into a city group is so important around here. If you're new with us, this isn't the only time we're going to talk about it because it's the beginning of a semester and it's a great time to jump in and a great way to get connected and a great way to grow. You will hear about it all year long. It, ad nauseum. You're going to be like, I get it, I get it, I get it. Because it's so important. It's not just, oh, get into a group because it's a good thing to do. Get into a group because it could save your life. Get into a group because it will help you become who God's designed you to become. Because together we can do some things. Individually we can do some things, but together we can do exponential together. There's a, there's a, a little experiment done with horses where they had one horse pull a certain amount of weight and then they put two horses together and, and doubled the weight. And they did it. But then they added more than double, and they did that as well. Because two together didn't just double the efforts or double the impact. It, it, the expon, it exponentially impacted what was done. The same is true for you and me. We can do some things by ourselves. But when we connect with and do it with others, we're able to do not just double or triple. We do exponentially more. It's the way that God designed us to live. Now, in light of all of that, I, I realize that, that the relationships within church can be hurtful. And we live in a world right now where some pretty hurtful and, and terrible things about leaders having moral failures and churches hurting people in, in really egregious ways. Verbal abuse, sexual abuse, abusing power. And if that's you here today, if you've experienced that in any way, I'm so sorry. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And unfortunately, we, those things make headlines and, and they, they get touted from the rooftops. And, and it, it sometimes makes us think that that's how all churches are, how all leaders are. And the reality is, is to be a part of a church is to potentially get hurt. I'm not talking about the egregious kinds of hurts. I'm talking about human hurts. Like we are going to bump each other. We're going to 
offend each other. That's why Paul, in all of his writings, is saying over and over again, forgive, bear with one another. Over and over. Why? Because we get bumped. Because we hurt each other. But we've got to work through it and, and make our way into health and wholeness through other people. See, we might have been hurt in community, but the reality is we also heal in community. Eugene Peterson, writer of the message version of the Bible, says our membership in the church is a corollary of our faith in Christ. We can no more be a Christian and have nothing to do with church than we can be a person and not be in a family. Membership in the church is a basic spiritual fact for those who confess Christ as Lord. It is part of the fabric of redemption. See, God is in the business of redemption and transformation. And life transformation happens in the context of relationship. We become who we need to become through the friction, through the encouragement, through the, the support of others. God, by His Holy Spirit, working through His people. And so, as we not only move into the seventh chapter of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount and conclude over the next couple of months, but even today, we, we want to respond. Respond to what Jesus draws out and what we're drawing out of these passages and take a next step. I want to encourage you, whether you've been tracking with us for the last several months or maybe you're new with us, we just read the, the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount again. Maybe take this week and read through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Read through it slowly. Is there anything that sticks out, anything that disrupts you a bit? I mean, lean into that. Ask the Holy Spirit, why is this disrupting me? And for some of you here, maybe you're here in church for the first time, or maybe the first time in a long time. And the invitation for you today is to, to trust Jesus to trust Jesus in his way and become his apprentice, to become like Jesus, to be one who lives not out of selfishness but selflessness, who doesn't lean into stinginess but leans into generosity so much so that he gave his whole life away. If that's you here today, would you just sincerely under your breath say, Jesus, I give you my life. It's a statement of surrender. To say, my life belongs to you, every aspect. I, I want you to be the one who shapes how I live. It's the beginning of an amazing journey. It's not the only thing we need to say to God, but it's an amazing first thing to say to Him. And together today, we want to take a step, and we're going to take a step by participating in communion together. If you came in this morning and did not receive a communion cup, if you would, just raise your hand and one of our host team uh, will make their way towards you and make sure that you get one. Just keep your hand raised until they get to you. Uh, if you choose not to participate in communion with us, that's totally fine. But we practice what we call open communion, which means that if you're a follower of Jesus, we would love for you to participate with us, even if you just said yes to Jesus a moment ago. Because communion is not about belong, membership in one particular church, but, but, but about belonging to the family of God. But scripture also says that before we take communion, we're to examine ourselves. And so we're going to take a moment before we 
eat the bread and drink the cup, to examine ourselves, which really just means that we open our hearts, we open our lives, and we ask the Holy Spirit, it says in Psalm 139, search me and know me. Find any anxious or offensive ways in me. The reason we ask the Holy Spirit to do that is so that we might see them, repent, confess, give those to God, run to the throne of grace with boldness and knowing we will receive mercy. So if you would, while the music plays softly, just open your heart. Maybe you want to open your hands. Ask the Holy Spirit to search you. Bring those things before God. communion here at Mill City, we also pray a corporate confessional prayer, meaning we all pray a prayer of confession together. It's going to come up here on the screen. The reason we do this is it's just a reminder that this isn't just a a me and God only kind of thing, but a together uh, thing. And so it reminds us that the, whether it's the person next to us or the person that we live with in our house or down the street or whatever the case might be, that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Each one of us is in just as much need of Jesus and his grace as anyone else. And so look, can we pray this prayer together as it comes on the screen? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. You can take the communion cup, peel off the top layer, gives you access to the bread. The next layer gives you access to the juice. The scripture says that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he betrayed, he took bread. This would have been the night before he went to the cross. It says, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. By us taking the bread, we are remembering Jesus' sacrifice, his beaten and bruised body on the cross. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus is saying we will remember Jesus spilled blood for the forgiveness of sins. So let's drink the juice together. If you've been around Mill City for a while, and every time we take communion, oftentimes I'll just close communion and prayer and pray for all of us. Today we want to do something just a little different in line with the message. 
talking about we are living in and we are we, we live in community. And so I want you to pray together, maybe with a person or two around you. Maybe it's somebody you came with. Maybe you're, 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 you're somebody who's sitting, you're sitting next to, whether maybe you don't know them. If you choose not to pray with someone else, that's totally fine. But if you would, turn towards a couple of people. Uh, if you don't know them, get their name and just pray for one another. Pray for the grace of God to fill their lives, the revelation of the love of God, to allow the disruption of Jesus to be a transformative agent in our hearts and our lives. We just take a moment, pray for one another, music will play softly as we thank Jesus for what he did on the cross, the impact it has on our lives.